I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget J. Paul Valenza. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. I'm Angelie Preston. And I'm Lorenzo Rodriguez. This is What's Next. A dedicated hour to have important conversations about the issues facing the marginalized and underrepresented communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We're gonna have some real healing. We've gotta have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. What's Next continues our mission to discuss race, equity, and the common concerns of Buffalo's East Side and beyond. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. Hello, I'm Lorenzo Rodriguez, and welcome to this episode of What's Next. Back in September, we aired an episode that was taped on location at the Rheinstein Woods Nature Preserve near Depew. Our tour guide was the very knowledgeable Marcus Rostin. Marcus is a self-proclaimed black birder and an environmental educator in the western New York area. Our trip was originally three hours long, and after our first hour of highlights aired, we felt we had to hear more from this immersive, and informative experience. What follows is more from that trip with me, WBFO Digital Media Editor Dallas Taylor, and Marcus Rostin. Enjoy. And in general, birding in Western New York, pretty pretty popular, pretty, a lot of avid bird watchers, and a very popular segment, which you've been on before, Bird Note, yes. that airs on our station, is, is hugely popular. It's good to see that that there's, a, there's still an avid community of, of bird enthusiasts, bird watchers, birders. What's the proper term there? I like to say the proper term is whatever you want it to be. Uh, I call myself a birder. Um, you know, people say they go bird watching just as valid. Um, I like to I like to keep people identifying however they want to. Um, but birder, bird watcher, both totally valid terms. And yeah, here in Western New York, we do have um, a pretty robust birding community. Uh, thankfully, I think it's because we are in such a globally significant important bird area that we have a lot of people engaged in uh, the birds that come through. We are blessed with the natural resources of Western New York being right here on the shore of the Great Lakes and in between two Great Lakes of the Niagara River, just uh, great opportunities for birding. So, and it's great that the community has taken a love for the birds just uh, as strongly. We got some other sounds coming in to join the chorus. American goldfinch flying over, cicadas calling. Ah, so there are cicadas out here as well. Yes. I, uh, prior to this, I was at, in Washington, the Washington DC DMV area, and boy, did I get introduced to the cicadas out there. Uh, I was down there for the, the massive brood, the, the big- 17 year the hatch. 17 year one, and uh, I, I, was, I was thoroughly underwhelmed. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> they were ever, there were a lot of parts, you could see them, but uh, I had seen, I had been told horror stories that they were, they'd be on cars and, and, and everywhere you walk, you're crunching into one, unfortunately, because it was this massive To take the news media by storm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But, uh, I mean, I, you still saw them and, and you saw their, 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 I guess what the, the exoskeleton that they molted out of. The exuvia that they'll leave, uh, yeah, attached to trees as they hatch out from their, uh, early juvenile stage where they exist underneath the soil. They have their fun down below, right? And then they come out come like up. zombies. They, they go to sleep, they hibernate for years. 
and then come up the treetops and just scream at the top <laughs> of their lungs. That's their is that their mating season or is that their that's their arrival into the world and just hey here we are. They're the whole point loud. get up there get to the top of the tree start screaming out you're looking for mates. The whole point is just to mate lay your eggs so you can have more babies underground and that is the whole point of being an adult uh, cicada. So does Western New York have that wave of, of 17 years as well, that brood? There are, there, so there are a bunch of different species of mm -hmm. cicada. There are annual cicadas that do that process every year. Um, but we also have the same 17-year uh, cicada hatch that happened uh, yeah, with everybody else. Not nearly as uh, loud as uh, the as a central, the yeah. <laughs> central eastern seaboard area. Yeah, I mean, I've seen videos of the like extreme cases where it's just, like I said, a whole car covered in, in them. But um, now I did read though that, that there's concerns about climate change and that affecting their, their, their brood cycles. Is that correct? Not just the brood cycles of them, but yeah, many mo many insects, uh, birds, uh, climate change is going to wreak havoc on our, what we call the phenological calendar. Mm -hmm. uh, phenology is what I like to refer to as nature's calendar. The way that uh, these natural processes have tuned in to the regular uh, changing of the seasons and uh, changing of the temperatures uh, over the, you know, thousands, millions of years that these animals have evolved, they've had a pretty steady uh, calendar. But with climate change, we see uh, the length of seasonings changing, uh, and we see uh, precipitation changing, all these different patterns, winds, uh, all of that. They're accused to basically start stages of their lives. Exactly. And they're now starting to get out of sync because they're speeding up at rates that, you know, these species are not uh, equipped to adapt to. So, yeah, so I, cicadas and birds uh, and most insects, the climate change is going to change all those cycles. And also urban development also plays a role there, I think, for the cicadas as well, that because they're underground and people yes. are excavating, they're creating new new developments and all of a sudden they they dig into a whole cicada Habitat loss, uh, habitat. yes. Yep, yep. Love it. Well, I guess we're going to say bye to our green frog friend. It's not easy being a green frog. Beautiful native wildflowers growing right beneath the boardwalk. These are called cardinal flower, uh, which is a beautiful deep red native plant that loves growing in wetlands. Now, we mentioned the lilies as an invasive species, but I've also looked up that we have issues with, there's some other ones. There's the Emerald ash borer, which is a, which that's a, a like an emerald beetle looking. Yeah. Thing. But then as far as vegetation, you got. Uh, for, uh, for plants, there's pale swallow wart, uh, which is, yeah, an invasive plant. One of our biggest uh, invasive plants is actually right behind us. Is so it the dewberry or? This is called Phragmites or common reed. Uh, it's a long. Long, very stem. tall grass. I am sure that everybody has seen this plant growing in any kind of roadside ditch along these highways, underneath electrical lines. It, long blades of, of leaves. A very on tall it. reed can grow up to 10 feet long. In the when it starts flowering, it has what almost looks like grains uh, or like wheat that grows at the top of it mm. with uh, those big brown flowers. Kind of like the bottom of a corn stalk. Yes. So that is our uh, one of our most. Uh, <laughs> 
I was going to say dangerous invasive <laughs> species, but one that we are uh, working to manage the most. Uh, invasive plants, what they are, um, an invasive species is a species that isn't native to the area, mm -hmm. so it's usually brought from somewhere else, uh, and it has a negative effect where it grows. So it either affects the, negatively affects the environment, negatively affects uh, economics, or it negatively affects human health. Could have toxins for the animals themselves also? Yes. Um, and what Phragmites does is it grows so dense in monocultures that it completely crowds out wetland areas, not allowing any other plants like cardinal flower to grow. And the difference between Phragmites and cardinal flower is because cardinal flower has grown, uh, has evolved here, it has a lot of native wildlife that depend on it. Phragmites, nothing depends on it. It's, it's not useful for the species assemblage that we have here. So when it creates that monoculture, it devalues that habitat for the native species that would traditionally be there. So. And what's being done to combat these invasive species? We here at Rhinestein Woods, we have a stewardship program. We specifically have a Phragmite strike team. They come out every other Tuesday evening and they are working. A strike team. Yeah. I love it. They are working to uh, remove uh, stands of Phragmites to prevent our beautiful ponds from being crowded out and just becoming a giant stand of Phragmites. So in terms of environmental challenges, invasive species is probably up there with uh, one of the most difficult things that we have to try and manage. Thank goodness we have Phragmites Team 6. Yes. <laughs> Which you can join if anyone is interested. We have, you know, a very strong volunteer program here at Rhinestein Woods. And with large challenges like invasive species management, Phragmites, you know, it's all hands on deck to try and take it over. You can see here Phragmites uh, growing off the side of our boardwalk. And this other plant that is growing in between it, which also looks like a grass. Mm -hmm. But right now that grass has a puff of flowers at the top. This is called a rush. That is a great native plant that grows in the same wetland areas that you can see Phragmites is starting to take uh, yeah, control over. Oh, wow. and, but Rush actually feeds uh, native wildlife where Phragmites does not. And so. that's everything from white-tailed deer to... To birds, uh, insects that uh, create relationships, symbiotic relationships with these plants over millennia. Uh, so all of that gets lost when that plant is replaced with a plant that evolved with a whole other set of species on a different continent. So how, do we know how these species get here? It's case? a variety of reasons. The lilies were brought by by. They were Mrs. a Ryan beautiful uh, horticultural plant that people like growing in their ponds and they just escape into the natural environment. I believe Phragmites was also brought as a, you know, a guarded plant and then it just escapes into natural areas. Uh, we're also standing beneath some dead ash trees. So you mentioned the emerald ash borer. Mm. Uh, so these trees, we're looking at uh, small trees, but they're uh, standing and unfortunately dead. Barren. Uh, and the emerald ash borer was actually brought over in a shipping crate. Uh, a shipping crate that came into the New York City area happened to have a borer that was inside of that wood. Native of what area? Uh, it's native to uh, Eurasia. I forget specifically, but I believe uh, it's from the Asian continent. And that one shipping container that happened to have emerald ash borer on it now has devastated 15% of the standing trees in New York State. Wow. So as you drive into Rhinestein Woods along Como Park Boulevard, you'll see just these, a sea of dead standing trees uh, that are thanks to that emerald ash borer coming through. So the ash borer, beautiful looking beetle. Yeah, nice I emerald green. Insect of sorts, and, and so it, it kills off the tree. How does it do that? What the emerald ash borer does is it gets underneath the outside, that hard bark layer, and it gets inside to the inner bark layer, the cambium layer. 
and that bore just bores through in a back and forth. We have a lot of native bores that do the same thing, but they tend to make their pass up and down that doesn't kill a tree. What the emerald ash borer does is it goes around the tree so much so that it severs all of those uh, those tubes that carry water and nutrients throughout the tree. It's arteries, basically. It's arteries, basically. Yeah, it, it essentially just girdles that tree and it prevents it from being able to move nutrients. So that is what ends up killing it. Yes. <laughs> that is a uh, warbling vireo. Cool. Oh. Wow, you've got quite the equipment there, ma'am. <laughs> yeah, that is yeah. quite the lens. Got to learn how to use it. Yeah. <laughs> That's a beautiful photo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice spot. We're here with WBFO NPR member station. Uh, have you frequented uh, Rhinestein Woods a lot, or is this? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I come here quite often. And uh, what what brings you to Rheinstein? What's the what's the uh, main draw? It's peaceful. It's quiet most of the time, and uh, taking photos, a lot of nice wildlife, deer, uh, amazing amount of birds, spring migration, that type of thing. So, yeah. I'm sorry for springing this 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 impromptu <laughs> conversation <laughs> on you. What's your name, if I may? Uh, Debbie Rich. Well, thank you, Debbie. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Good luck uh, bird watching. Thank you. Oh, look at this critter. We got a little fuzzy caterpillar. Oh, yeah. This looks like a tussock moth caterpillar. So do the, much like the birds, do the, do the insect population have kind of a similar, you said it earlier, I'm trying to remember. Phenology? Phenology. Phenological you. calendar, Phenological if you will. Yeah. <laughs> they do. They, ha they have their own. Uh, you think about how monarchs uh, are probably one of the most uh, common butterfly that comes to mind. They have to time their migration. If they get here before uh, there are milkweed plants for them to land on and feed on, then they have no food. Uh, so they, they have, insects have migrations, they have timings. Uh, if an insect comes out too early and their food source hasn't yet emerged because their food source might be timed to light schedules, which doesn't change mm -hmm. as much through climate change, whereas the insect might take its cues from uh, heat uh, and that changing, which is changing with climate mm -hmm. change. So uh, insects, they uh, have those same calendars that uh, are in danger of falling, well, are falling out of sync uh, as well. And also they could just end up being early prey for, if they're out, if they're, if they coincide with another animals or birds, uh, phrenological calendar, then they might be yeah. easy prey. And then you start seeing, uh, if those calendars get out of sync, you start seeing chain reactions. Birds, they time having their young uh, with big pulses of insects. All birds, when they're growing up, they require nice, soft protein packets of food, which most of our birds rely on caterpillars for feeding their young. If, though, if those birds get to a location too early, have their young, and don't have the uh, exploding caterpillar insect population to feed them, then mm -hmm. those young are going to go hungry. So you start seeing how if the, if the caterpillar's calendar gets off, it starts throwing off the bird's calendar. Everything that interacts with the bird starts getting thrown off. So it's these chain reactions that uh, is really uh, at risk of being changed with climate change. Through. The circle of life is very very particular and if i assume like it's a chain reaction as you said one thing goes off 
gets off kilter, then the rest of it kind of domino effects. When you get out into a forest, it seems like it's just a whole bunch of random things in an area that uh, are, you know, existing on their own. But nothing out here is happening by chance. Nothing is random. It is all a result of relationships uh, between organisms, relationships between organisms and abiotic factors like your wind, your rain. Uh, so all of that is very much reliant on each other. When you start pulling at the string of one organism, you start feeling the web of life uh, responding to it. So yes, uh, all of these things are very intimately tied to each other and uh, are tied to a an environment, an uh, ecosystem that evolved and changed very slowly, typically over hundreds of thousands of years. And we're now accelerating that change uh, on a scale that is going to start throwing off calendars. This little guy's moving. We were standing yeah. here and he's like about five feet away from us already in a matter of two minutes. I forgot to mention earlier that we are joined by uh, my colleague and digital media specialist, Dallas Taylor. Dallas, say hi to the folks. Of what's next? This is wonderful. My first time being on the program. Uh, it's wonderful to be out here in Rheinstein Woods and enjoying the nature. And like you were talking about before, Marcus, how if you pull one part of nature, it affects the whole thing. Like nothing is random. I was just saying that's kind of a symbolism for just our community itself here in Western New York. If you tug at one part and you notice how everything else starts to come together and almost defend it in a way. People forget how interconnected everything is. And that's the thing I always keep harping on is everything affects something else, whether it's here, whether it's down south, whether it's hundreds of thousands of miles away uh, in another country, in another continent. It's all it's all one e ecological system. We're on one, one greenhouse. And, and that's why I love birds is birds are that connector. I can stay right here at Rheinstein Woods and I could see a bird that is flying all the way to South America and it is interacting in an entirely different ecosystem down there, but I can see it right here at Rheinstein Woods. At the same time, I could be connected to the Arctic Circle during the winter when birds come down here. That's why I love those birds as they are great at illuminating and showing that interconnectedness of the planet. We get so, as humans, fixed on our one location because we're a little bit uh, less uh, are transitory in our homes, where, whereas uh, a home of a gray catbird is in Buffalo one part of the year and a different continent the other part. And it, uh, all along the way, stopping and connecting both people, ecosystems, and wildlife throughout the entire range. What would you say is the bird that migrates the furthest to here or from here? Put me on the spot. <laughs> uh, Test you today, Marcus. So uh, some of our farthest flyers, uh, blue-winged teal, they will nest up here and they'll fly all the way to South America. Uh, we have some uh, shorebirds like uh, sandpipers, the plovers. That As a Floridian, I know about the sandpipers. Yeah, the sand, some, some of our shorebirds, they will uh, overwinter really far south. Uh, that's good. I'm not. Few, few. <laughs> I wasn't gonna. I, 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 you got your points. You got points. I didn't. I didn't, I didn't look at my. I didn't get my migration uh, refresher this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, we had. Uh, I had belted kingfisher. I know that the Orioles make their way up here. Yes. Not so. Not just solely solely playing the Blue Jays, but 
uh, in, in migratory seasons, they, they come up here. Love nesting right here in these tall cottonwood and walnut trees. They make their, the Orioles will make their beautiful architectural wonder nests that are literally woven pieces, fibers of plants that they painstakingly pull apart, weave into these beautiful sacks, and uh, they'll nest right here at Rhinestein Woods at the tops of these trees. You mentioned the warblers, very much part of this area. And another example, one that I should have uh, immediately thought of, because they are uh, probably the best example of our neotropical uh, migratory birds, and that those warblers, they will, some pass through here, go up north. We have some like yellow warbler, common yellow throat that will nest here. Um, but they are our connection to the tropics, to South America. That is where they are ha hanging out, and they come up to Buffalo uh, to lay their eggs and to breed up here. Let's talk about some of the flora we're seeing here. This giant tree uh, that we have right here in front of us, this is our eastern cottonwood tree. They are really great at growing huge really quickly. They are one of our uh, early successional species, so they get to an area, they sprout up really quick, put out those limbs, uh, and you can see them from far away because their leaves, they're shaped like heart shapes, like deltoids, if you put them upside down, look at that heart. The cool thing about cottonwood leaves is they, the stem that leads to their leaves is actually flat, uh, which I can't roll between my fingers. And what that allows them to do is wave back and forth. So you can see when the wind blows through cottonwood trees, their leaves dance on their branches, waving back and forth on that flat petiole. So very common tree that we have in Western New York, growing usually in our wetter areas along uh, in riparian zones, which is the scientific word that we use to describe uh, wet areas along uh, rivers, lakes, ponds, creeks. Now this, this bad boy is what, about 75 feet or give or take? Probably, yeah. Wide, well, width of maybe, I don't know, I'd say four feet in diameter or so. It's a pretty, pretty big tree. What, yeah. what, what took me is the, the, the grooves on the outside on the outer bark. Yes, that the heavily furrowed bark, really deep ridges, yeah. another great characteristic. And the cool thing, well, cool, the cottonwood tree, it is big and grows very quickly. So despite this tree being really large, you probably think this young. tree has to be hundreds of years old. Yeah. But it's probably, yeah, only a couple of decades old. Uh, but since they grow so fast, they're also known to not be the strongest in structure. So they also fall down and break apart pretty quickly. So uh, you can grow fast, uh, but you're not going to be as strong. Uh, compare that to, you know, an oak. That is a real slow growing tree. If we were to see an oak at this size, it would be much older, um, but also that strong wood that uh, is built to last. What's a big, what's a popular misconception with the wildlife of Western New York? I mean, one of the things that I like to talk about uh, for wildlife in Western New York is, uh, you know, a lot of people think that they have to go far distances mm -hmm. uh, and go, like, nature is something that is somewhere else. You go to nature. Uh, and here in Western New York, we're lucky that we, I mean, everywhere you are, you have nature is always around you. Um, but in Western New York, we're lucky with how many natural areas that we have. Uh, and it is just uh, abounds us, like right here, uh, giant uh, na natural animal home. A huge mound constructed is this a dam? of sticks and mud. 
it would be a dam if it were blocking uh. water from flowing, but this is not. This is that same animal's home. A What、beaver. we are looking at is a beaver lodge.、Mm. Uh, we do have multiple colony of beaver here at Rhinestein Woods, and this lodge is right here on Lily Pond, probably our largest、uh, lodge that is very active. Oh, I wish you could see some beavers. I love. One of my favorite rodents.、Uh. We got another lily pond coming up here. This is more than a pond, I think.、It's、This is technically our lake. So we have one lake here at Rhinestein Woods, Flat Tail Lake. And you could tell it's a lake because、uh, there are sp spots where the lilies can't grow. All of those lilies, they have a stem that's about four feet long. To five feet long, so every time you see a lily, you know that that pond's only a couple of feet deep. But this lake is deep enough that we have areas where those lilies can't reach. So that's where it graduates from a pond, turns into a lake. And if you couldn't tell, it was a lake. This very, very fitting sign、right、in front sign, of me. We'll tell you. We'll tell you. <laughs> so this is our largest body of water.、Uh, this is a. Uh, choice stopover habitat. So as those birds are migrating through, they're flying over Western New York and they're looking for places where they can land.、Uh, and a lot pick the Niagara River.、Uh, tons of birds pick Niagara River, but some birds will hang stop right over here in Chitawaga. And、uh, during the spring, we're a very popular spot to have loons. So each year we'll have loons that will stop over here, hang out. They'll hang out with ringneck ducks. Big Canadian bird, right? The loon.、Uh, <laughs> I don't want to give them all the credit. We got <laughs> loons here in New York State, but you got to go up to the Adirondacks really when you to see them、uh, in their breeding range. But they are, you know, the loony. They are very、uh, just a fun. They live up to their name because they look like a odd bird. Do they not? They do look like an odd bird, <laughs> but they are one that I like. I call them、uh, like an iceberg, where you'd be surprised how big and imposing those loons are. You're really only seeing about 10% of that bird. The rest of it is huge underneath the water, and they have. You know those bills that mean business, and they are fishing machines. I would not want to get up close into the face of a loon. <laughs> and then the,、uh, and then farther out, you you hear the,、uh, the native call of the seven-year-old. The camper. Summer, <laughs> summeritis, camperitis, campers, summeritis. Sorry, I'm a dad. I gotta have the dad jokes. Some other things happen in our pond. This is also a beautiful place to check out dragonflies, our aerial、mm. insect hunters. We have more species of dragonfly than I know how to identify. I was about to say these are like I've never seen. Those were like blue, sapphire-looking. I believe I do know that one. That looks like it's a common whitetail. Oh, and then we have、uh, which looks like it should be called. Uh, something blue. That's actually called a green darner dragonfly. Okay. All right. What? Who, who's naming <laughs> these things? That is clearly a blue dragonfly. <laughs> yeah. You know, scientists like to keep everyone on their toes sometimes, until you see what's probably called the green dragonfly, and you're like, all right, I guess that one's the green one. But.、Uh, Our dragonflies—they love hanging out in these ponds. They are also an animal that has a, a two parts to their life cycle. They actually start underneath the water. The adult dragonflies lay their eggs on the water.、And、then the adults grow up. They spend some will spend multiple years as nymphs underneath the ground or underneath the water hunting until they emerge、uh, as adults. 
and then they become our aerial hunters. So they are some of the best flyers of the animal kingdom, able to fly forward, backwards, uh, and pretty much outfly any other insect that uh, is found uh, above a pond. So I would not want to be a fly around a dragonfly. In terms of where we are right now, too, uh, the general feeling of our space has greatly changed. We went from our pond uh, ecosystems to now we are completely under a canopy of large trees. I mentioned before that uh, a lot of Rhinestein Woods was formerly farmland after mm -hmm. it was settled, but there was a section of the woods that escaped the plight of heavy logging, and that is where we are now. This is our old growth section of Rhinestein Woods, where we have trees that are hundreds of years old, uh, and they make up this nice stand of mature trees. So we're looking at giant black cherry trees with dark bark that is flaking. <laughs> they, we call it burnt corn chips like bark because uh, BC burnt corn chips also means black cherry. So uh, mm. then that contrast with our nice slaty uh, smooth trees of thin, our Europe, very, very our, thin trees, our beech trees. Uh, oh, uh, all right. Now I have to get you some thicker ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I mar what remarkable to me is that they're so thin, but yet very tall. I'd say also a little bit taller than the 75 foot tree we saw earlier. Uh, refresh me on the name of that one. Uh, our Eastern Cottonwood. Yeah. The Eastern Cottonwood was a lot larger, larger, or just as tall, but wider. These are spindly looking trees and, and I see it swaying in the wind. So I'm, as you mentioned, some of these topple over easily, but I, I'm surprised that these guys have uh, stood the test of time. And, well, and these ones, so now we're moving into our more, what's called a climax forest. So this is, these trees are the opposite of those cottonwood trees. Cottonwood trees, they get to a location, they want to be the first one growing, they get out before they're shaded out. These trees are climax, are beech trees, are maples. These ones can grow in shade and they take a long time to grow, but they grow nice and big. Uh, and that is what creates this nice forested habitat. So these ones, while uh, some get as big as those cottonwood trees, these woods are a lot stronger, uh, denser, uh, and designed to grow a lot longer. We actually had uh, here at Rhinestein Woods, the largest beech tree in New York State, what's called a champion beech tree. Mm. It's actually just around the corner from here. Uh, and it was a tree that has started growing before this country uh, was founded, before the Declaration of Independence was signed. Uh, so over you know, 200 and uh, something years old. 200 and some change. So right here, you know, 10, 15 minutes away from uh, the city center in the city of Buffalo. We have these old trees that, Older have, than this country. that have stood the test of time so far. Now, if we can make sure we manage them that they continue is uh, going to be our next challenge. We got a, like a long-legged spider here. What is that? Um, it's, well, it's formal name is called a harvest man, but those uh, people might know it more commonly known as a daddy long legs. But yeah, it is a I was on the right spider. Track. It's a spider-like creature with those long, little like you know, bead body with those long legs. That... Yeah, big bulb body, and then just very. And there's a few of them actually. Ooh, wow, there's. Yeah. I I have to admit, admit I'm quite the arachnophobe. Oh. Uh, I I've, I'm growing to you know. Technically, I don't think they're arachnids. No. Yeah. So they're just they're. Spider-like. Oh, spider-like. Oh well, look at that. Yeah. So yeah. Right, no so thing. I shouldn't be fear of. I shouldn't fear them. Still, still 
wouldn't want one creeping all over me. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> and that's where, like, I like to talk to people, you know, about those generalized animal fears. And, you know, it's one thing to... Uh, yeah. <laughs> one thing to be afraid of an animal to like prevent it from you doing something going somewhere is another thing to respect an animal's personal space mm -hmm. and respect your personal space and you respect when those spaces don't overlap so that's totally fine uh, what I usually like to talk to people you know into versus the whole I can't go out there there are snakes there are spiders there are things trying to get me it's like well if we just treat everything with respect give it its distance then we can both coexist and not have to you know step on each other or get in the way of each other so uh, that's way, yeah, we can respect each other's space rather than be afraid of it. I blame an early exposure to the 1990s movie Arachnophobia. Mm. That didn't do, that didn't do me any favors. Uh, it was just, I, I feared getting a spider boring into my head and, yeah. and just making eggs in there. And I think there's a scene where, where one of the, one of the people in the movie is showering and there's one in their in her hair. Yeah, no, no and thanks. It's like, and it's like those popular betrayals, and that's why I always like find myself sticking up for bats when something like you know uh, rabies uh, outbreak or um, you know an occurrence, usually not an outbreak, hmm. um, happens because you know they it can you can get they can be transferred by any other mammal. Uh, most mammals can carry it, so it's not just bats. But the reason that bats get the bad name is they are usually uh, guilty of trying to find a nice roosting spaces. And we keep on putting houses where they're typically roosting. And they like to see if they can find any nice little place on a house that they can uh, use an as attic. a roost. And a sometimes that happens to be an attic. <laughs> and they end up inside of a house. So that's where they kind of get a bad rep. But... Uh, if you treat any animal with respect, usually it includes a nice safe distance that prevents any of that rabies transfer. So I feel like that's the, my best recommendation. I feel like the bat needs uh, the owl's PR guy. Ah, there's our invasive species once again. Yes. And this the, is the let me, pop quiz here. Let's see. The firm. Well, firm guidus. No. It's firm. Frag. Frag. Fragmates. Fragmites. Yes. You can see these seeds are ready. Uh, they're, get, they're getting mature now. Um, so, yeah, this is a place where Phragmites, uh, also called the common reed, uh, has, this pond used to be greatly inundated. Uh, so much so that you weren't actually able to see any of the water on this pond when I was an intern here. And this is an example of ecological restoration is possible. It can happen, but a lot of times it's very labor intensive and very resource intensive. So we were able to treat this section and now uh, we have nice open water that this year was home to wood ducks. They had a family and raised ducklings on this pond. So opened up that habitat to species to uh, live there once again. Um, but as you can see, it's still growing all along our edges. It's only a matter of time unless we stay on top of it before it starts uh, taking over again. So I'm from Grand Island. Is there anything that I should uh, be on the lookout for out there in particular? Grand Island, uh, all depends what season you're talking. Grand Island, really, their big claim to fame is over the winter, where you have tens to hundreds of thousands of ducks that come down mm. and they hang out all surrounding Grand Island. Uh, winter around here is what I like to call weird duck season because we have an influx of these ducks that have so much character to them. Uh, you'll have ducks that have bright red bills that are thin and serrated, red eyes, green heads with a green mohawk. Uh, you'll have birds that have blue bills. Uh, long-tailed ducks have these long, elegant tails that arc from behind them. Canvas backs, they have this 
deep maroon head, this uh, canvas color body to them. And by the tens of thousands, they will surround Grand Island all along the east and the west branch of Niagara River, uh, and especially right at the beginnings of the tips of Grand Island, the north and the south tip mixed in with you know, hundreds of swan that come through. Tundra swan will hang out in the river and over winter. So that the winter is when Grand Island, I think, it's birding uh, really uh, blows up because you can see all of those birds that come from the north and they come down here, they hang out along the Niagara River. We are there, Florida, for that season. Uh, they love in Grand Island because you have, you're at the heart of Niagara River. It's a great place to see everything. A grand place. <laughs> grand place. Oh. oh, there's a deer all the way back there. Way, way back. There's a deer all the way in the back, too. Oh, straight ahead? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's like camouflage in there. I have yet straight to spot ahead? him. I have yeah, yet to it's, spot him. Uh, it's, uh, you can see legs moving. So you can see that tree that's coming out of the water that's dead. Oh, yeah, I'm looking yeah. right underneath oh, that and past it. Yeah, I feel like deer are just all throughout the country, but all different types of deer. But whitetail is kind of the one. Yeah, uh, they are. Uh, they are the only deer species that we have in New York State. Um, and now that they lack a natural predator, their population numbers are Booming. very high. Uh, unfortunately, they're one of the things that are uh, impacting our forests here at Rhinestone Woods right now, and that. They are not allowing new trees to grow because there are so many deer. Really, the plants that you see on the ground are growing here at Rhinestein Woods. Uh, those are the only plants that the deer won't eat. If it is edible to a deer, it is gone. So that milkweed, yeah. uh, milkweed that's surviving. So yeah, it's uh, our like our little saplings for all of our trees. If you notice that we don't really have two mixed of tree stands here. All of our trees are pretty tall. You can see right through our forest. Um, it's called the browse line, where deer clear out anything that they can reach, so that allows it to see through. And instead of new trees growing in at Rhinestein Woods, what you see is a lot of ferns, because the deer don't eat any ferns. And then those ferns grow in such dense uh, populations that they, allow, they don't allow new trees to grow. So uh, thanks to the deer, uh, we actually got a pretty uh, drastic forestry report saying that Unless we start uh, seriously managing our deer here, that in the next 100 to 150 years, that there actually won't be a woods here at Rhinestein Woods, uh, because once all of these trees age out, there is nothing coming in to replace them. So controversial thought here, but we talk about a threat to many animals, and probably uh, as a as a conservationist, as an environmentalist, you're 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 you have a say on 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 the, the sport of hunting, but in this case. Hunting is a Hunting very, deer? Uh, very useful method in conservation, especially when you're talking about species like deer that no longer have a natural predator. Uh, so hunting, um, especially for white-tailed deer in western New York, is uh, needed in order to keep their populations at healthy levels um, so that we don't have deer that you know, get to the middle of winter and they're starving because there's not enough food to support their high numbers. Uh, 
everybody who drives around Western New York at night is always, mm -hmm. you know, stricken with fear out of a deer just running out into a roadway. So, uh, yeah, hunting, while a lot of people may, it may not seem like hunting is advantageous for conservation, uh, for the conservation of species, ecosystems. Uh, in wildlife management, it is a very useful tool uh, and necessary when it comes to some species. And the sturgeon, is that because they're just sought after prize fish or? They were hunted. <laughs> At one point they were uh, so populous that there are stories saying that when they come into the creeks that you can walk across the back of sturgeon uh, to get across because they're so numerous. And then they were f discovered by colonists that, wait a minute, the sturgeon here in North America are just kind of like the sturgeon uh, in back home and we can get their eggs and sell their eggs as food called caviar. Mm. So if you ever heard of caviar, that is sturgeon eggs. So once they were identified as a caviar source, then sturgeon went from being so numerous that they were being caught by accident on boats when they were out commercial fishing that they would literally just pile them up on boats and burn them for fuel. Uh, now suddenly they're targeting them and getting as many sturgeon as they can uh, for their caviar. That didn't help their numbers. And fast forward to today, their biggest, uh, their biggest concern is the loss of spawning habitat because we have so many dams in our creeks that they spend their time, they spend their time as an adult in big bodies of water like Lake Erie, Lake Ontario, Niagara River, but they like to go into the creeks in order to spawn and they can't get past the dams that we put in their way. So it is kind of multifaceted uh, reasons that this lake sturgeon is now a uh, species of concern today. Um, but we're working to increase and work on, working on studying their, their habits and trying to get their numbers back up. Marcus, as far as our neighbors to the north, we are Buffalo Toronto Public Media. So what other wildlife sanctuaries, what areas up in, in Canada can, can Western New Yorkers go to and, and check out? One of the things that I love over on the Canadian side is I am jealous for how well that they have protected the Niagara Escarpment. And I think that is what I would highlight, uh, which the Niagara Escarpment, it starts in New York and it runs right through uh, Western New York, goes at the Niagara River. Everybody knows the Niagara Escarpment there because it's very visible as Niagara Falls. But when it continues on into Canada, they had great foresight to designate that area along the escarpment as an, an important ecological area. So over there is when you can see, where you can see the Niagara Escarpment in all of its glory uh, with its nice sharp cliff face, the individual plants that find those unique niches. You find plants that don't grow anywhere else but in the nice talus slopes along the Niagara Escarpment and those micro uh, habitats that exist between rock cracks. Uh, on that rock face um, and that is where that's what I think of immediately when I think of man what is a great ecological natural area to visit in Canada anywhere along that escarpment that starts at Niagara River and goes all the way to Bruce Peninsula well and beyond Bruce Peninsula but at Bruce Peninsula is where you can see it in its prime where that night that beautiful face meets the crystal clear waters of the Georgian Bay and Lake Huron. Uh, you could definitely get a feel for how imposing uh, of a landform the Niagara Escarpment is. So that is what I think of. Um, that's where I finally got to visit last year for the first time. I got to uh, skip the border and head up to Bruce Peninsula and just 
check out the Niagara Escarpment in all of its glory up there. That is one thing I am jealous of, how great the Canadians uh, thought through and protected the Escarpment. And not that far from here, which is no. fantastic. Well, I mean, yeah, uh, to get to Bruce Peninsula, like what, four and a half hours? Uh, it's a really easy drive, so I even recommend those on this side of the border. Get up there. All right, now we're going to leave the well-known rivers and streams that you're used to. If I gave you no frills uh, ticket anywhere in the world to go visit, out of all the ecological spots, where would you go? Uh, great I, question, great question. So I got a blank check to go anywhere I want. I think that I would then opt to pick our most remote areas. So I think I would actually head down to either Antarctica, so get a new view for that drastically different ecosystem, climate, and landscape, uh, or I'd opt for the North Pole. So I think if I have a blank check, I'm taking as much as I can. I'm getting to those remote you're, places. You're not, you don't get enough cold up here in Western New York and Buffalo. <laughs> you have to go to Antarctica. I want, it, I want it to be colder. That or I guess, yeah, or, you know, some uh, nice tropical island like Palau or one of those, you know, really uh, remote uh, wild places. So I think that's where I would go if I had that blank check to see how different, uh, to get as different as I can from our uh, temperate woodland as possible. A little placard on Dr. Reinstein. Yeah, we're now on our history trail, so if you come out the Rhinestone Woods, you can walk our history trail to get uh, educated on how Rhinestone Woods came to be all the way from the uh, native peoples that were here first, uh, all the way into colonization and into Dr. Victor Rhinestone Woods. Yeah, Dr. Victor Rhinestone Woods, he loved uh, the Adirondack Mountains is where he uh, really connected to nature, and, and that is what inspired him to bring that wildlife to Western New York to the Buffalo area to make Rhinestone Woods be a place that feels like the Adirondacks, that has the wildlife density and the same types of animals here. So that is what inspired him to dig these ponds, to plant these trees, and to bring wildlife and wilderness to Western New York. So how many of the ponds are, are they all made, man-made? All of our ponds, uh, all 19 ponds uh, and impoundments are done by Dr. Victor Rhinestone. We have one uh, one really small stream that runs through the center of Rhinestein Woods. Uh, it's a tributary of Slate Bottom Creek, which is a tributary of Cayuga Creek right over here. Um, but otherwise, all of the ponds uh, were dug by Dr. Victor Rhinestein. And lakes were there. No, the lake was also, uh, lake, lake too, lake too. Lake yeah. was also, Yep, wow. he, dug, he dug that, he dug Flat Tail Lake. Impressive. Um, now, a lot, of, a lot of Cheektowaga is a natural wetland. Uh, where we are, well, is the former, uh, well, as the glaciers retreated, uh, left this land nice, low, and flat, uh, and in between a bunch of streams like Cayuga Creek near us. So a lot of Rhinestone Woods was historically wetlands uh, and wet areas, but they did not have uh, the ponds uh, and the lake that it had here before. So yeah, you can see uh, right here is where all the red pine take over, and then a red-bellied woodpecker taking advantage climbing up one of those trees, which Rhinestein Woods, great place to also see woodpeckers. We have seven species of woodpecker that can be seen here throughout a given year. This one is one of our more popular ones. It's called the red-bellied woodpecker. Uh, and if you were to see it in person, what you would see is actually a red head. And you think, why is it not called the red-headed woodpecker? Uh, 
I don't ask those questions anymore. Because scientists are I, silly. I met I met the, the I, I met the uh, the blue dragonfly. Yeah. I'm sorry, the green the dragonfly. Green dragonfly. Yeah. I don't ask those questions anymore. But the red the red bellied woodpecker has a nice red mullet on a nice white face. Its back is covered with black and white, almost lattice uh, in pattern. And its stomach is actually white, unless you are holding the bird in your hand and you look right between its legs, it has a nice rosy color to it. That's it for our extra snippets from the Rheinstein Woods Nature Preserve. We would like to thank and extend our appreciation to the always enjoyable Marcus Rosten and to the friends of Rheinstein Woods for providing us the setting for a wonderful nature excursion. As a reminder, Buffalo Toronto Public Media offers the opportunity to go on your own birding adventure with our in-house birding enthusiasts, Stratton Rosten and Peter Hall during our Now We're Birding and Enjoying Nature Club trips. For more information, go to WNED.org and on the upper right-hand side, just search for Now We're Birding. Thank you for listening to What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.